Today's episode of A Slice of Medieval. Joining us today is a chap who seems to enjoy writing about my favourite legends. He did a fabulous series on Robin Hood and now he's tackling the story of King Arthur in an interesting way because he's doing it in parts as a serial book. So welcome to A Slice of Medieval for your second visit as well, isn't it, Angus? It is, yes. It's Angus Donald. Welcome, Angus. Oh, thank you very much, Sharon, for inviting me. It's very nice to come back on the show again. And I'm um, looking forward to telling you all about my new King Arthur project. You were saying rightly that it's episodes. So I was wondering if you'd like me to explain a little bit more about that. I would. What made you decide to write I don't think I put this in my questions, but I did wonder what made you decide to write it in episodes. And when is episode four coming out? <laughs> um, I'll get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> basically, the story is quite a sort of weird story. Well, not that weird. About 10 or 12 years ago, I want, I thought about doing a King Arthur thing. I think I was still writing Robin Hood books, the Outlaw Chronicles. And I thought it might be quite nice to do to do the other great English hero or British hero, which is King Arthur. For me, they seem a sort of like a pair, Robin Hood and King Arthur. I don't think there's anyone else who comes, I mean, Hero with the Wake, obviously, but, you know, I don't think there's anyone of those, of the same stature as Robin Hood and King Arthur. So about, I think it was 12 years ago, it's quite a long time ago, I started writing, I wrote a few chapters of a King Arthur story and it was kind of basically just an experiment. And it was very heavily influenced by Bernard Cornwall's Warlord Chronicles, which I loved. I read them when I was mm. sort of in my 20s. And I absolutely loved them. And they've been very influential on a lot of my writing. I think I, I last read them about 30 years ago. But but they're, but they're still so, so sort of strong in my memory that, that when I started writing this King Arthur thing, it sort of instinctively became set in more or less the same world as Bernard Cornwall's one. You know, the post, uh, post-Roman post uh, vacuum of power where you've got the Saxons, Anglo-Saxons coming in and you've got the crumbling of the Roman structures. Uh, and it's a time of chaos and it seemed a very good time to set a King Arthur story. So basically I sort of said, yes, that's let, let's set it in that time. It's also actually when most people think that King Arthur, if he existed, mm. would probably have been operating you have various um, yeah. uh, records. I mean, not not records of King Arthur, but they talk about a warlord, Brett Wilder, and various things like that who existed at this time. So that's what I so I started writing it, and I wrote about four or five chapters, and I put it down because I then had to go and do something else. I can't even remember. It was twelve years ago. I can't even remember what it was that I put it down to go and do. I put it down and I forgot about it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't forget forget about it. I sort of occasionally thought, oh yes, I should probably do something about that. And then I realised that I would never actually have time to 
to sit down and write the whole book or possibly I thought it, I, th I thought of it as a trilogy I still think it is a trilogy but I, I realized I'd never have time to sit down and write the whole book because I've got other things that I'm doing at the moment I'll just quickly just mention that I'm writing a Viking series called the Fireborn series about a berserker uh, and I've mm -hmm. got to do one of those um, another one of them I'm on number five at the moment and I've got another project which is a Mongol thing which I'm also writing and so basically I've got those two projects and I, there was no way I was going to like find the time, find a six months or something to write a whole other book. So what I thought I would do, which seemed at the time to be a very clever idea, and I'm now wondering <laughs> if it is a clever idea at all, or whether it was a rather silly thing to do. Um, I published the first, I think it's five or six chapters of the King Arthur thing with a promise that I'd write the rest when I had the time. And that once I'd published it, I realised I couldn't leave everybody hanging. Uh, so I then very quickly wrote the second episode. The first one came out in November, and I thought I'd better do the, the second one so that at least it was something for people to get into before Christmas. So I finished the second one in December, and then lots of people were saying, Okay, so when's number three coming? So the beginning part of this year, I wrote number three. And so there are now three episodes out. And I've now got to stop because I've got to write another Viking thing. And I've got to finish that by mid-March. And then I'll immediately have to go back to doing the King Arthur thing. That didn't really answer your yeah. question, except to say that it, it kind of happened by accident. And the idea was that I would never actually have the time to sit down and write a full thing so I could just do these episodes around my if you like my real job you know my real <laughs> well, not real my other commitments which I have to do you know I've got contracts and and various things to do you know so I have to do them hit the deadlines but but often I find that when I'm when I'm writing something and I finished a big piece of work I tend to kind of relax when I finished it for for a few weeks and it takes me a while to kind of sort of come down and then mm -hmm. I have to get back up again and it takes so there's often kind of a month or sometimes more between projects and I was thinking well that's not very productive I could probably use that time rather than watching television or going to the pub I could probably use that time more productively by writing short little things in that time and then self-publishing them so that's basically what it is it's a, it's a project that began as a sort of experiment and was hanging around for ages and I thought well I might as well just get it out there and I'm quite pleased with it I think it's quite good so basically a project around the other things that I'm trying to do um, at the same time. Now, the trouble is, Angus, that you've written it too well because it's compelling, you see. So everybody's going to say, oh, we want the next bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's very flattering and very kind of you to say so. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is they don't take, each one doesn't take all that long to write. I, I can do one in about 10 days, two weeks. So I just need two weeks clear and I can, and when you're self-publishing it, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not great at self-publishing. I've done two Robin Hoods self-published, but it's it is really easy. I found a guy who does really cheap covers, who's great, and my wife is doing the proofreading, and it's just such a quick process compared yeah. with mainstream publishing, which frustrates me enormously how long they take to do things. 
And I don't understand, I don't understand why. Well, I, I kind of do, but it's frustrating because they take, you know, years. I've got something which, a Mongol thing, which I'm trying to get my current publisher to to, to read. And he hasn't been able to read it yet, even. And and I said, well, when do you think we might be able to publish it? He said, well, you know, we're very keen on it and we like you and all that kind of stuff. He said, well, I think we're thinking about kind of, you know, middle of next year, end of next year. And I'm thinking, I wrote this last <laughs> year. And that's, and that's... A, that's kind of, and then I won't get any money for yeah. it for another year after that. It's just kind of like, yeah. why? Why should it take three years? Yeah. And the answer is that publishing, I think, is in a terribly bad state. The publishing of our kind of books, the kind of books that we write, mm-hmm. is um, is it's not in a good place. They're not making a lot of money, and that, so they're what they're doing is taking on more and more projects, which means they're overworked, mm-hmm. which means they don't have any time to do. I mean, I remember talking to a an editor at a party and he said he was doing 50 he was publishing 50 books this year and I said hang on a second there are only 52 weeks in the year you know so you know how can you possibly do that you know and then there's meetings and you know marketing meetings and all that kind of stuff and covers and I mean that's just he's barely got time to even read the book yeah let alone you know edit it and have a second read and proofread it and all of that so it's just kind of it, it, it seems, sorry, this is a very, very long answer, but I've been kind of pushed into <laughs> self-publishing because I've got stories I want to tell and the traditional mechanisms for, for publishing them seem to be failing. I think you're right. I think it is, it is rather like that. And the length of time is so long. But But as you say, I kind of understand why that is but it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Why, why do you think it is, Derek? Does that, why, why do you think it is? I agree with you. I think I think it is the fact that instead of the instead of publishing being all traditional publishing, since the advent of self-publishing, the returns for traditional publishers are lower. So as you say, they've, they've yeah. got to cram in more content. They've got to push out more content. There are only a certain number of people they can afford to employ to make that happen. Inevitably, that builds huge delays into every project, doesn't it? I mean, it must do. I can't see how it can't. There's only a limited amount you can humanly do. Imagine if you had a great novel that it needed a lot of work on. You know, yeah. How could you possibly manage that? You know, you might take, I mean, it takes me a week to read through my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, on the final read through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Same here. Well, that's the thing. When you're editing a book, um, you can't just sit there for eight hours reading the book and editing it. No. You can only do it for an hour and then you have to go and do something else. Otherwise, you start missing things. Yeah, yeah. I can't write for eight hours a day either. I mean, I can only do, <laughs> I can do about four hours. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. you know, I mean, a morning's work. And then I've got to stop and I don't work in the afternoons. So I come back again in the evening and do some work then. But I'm exhausted after after four hours. I mean, maybe if I was 20, I might be able to do it. So the King Arthur thing is kind of writing around Mm. the other projects. That's basically it's filling in the cracks and trying to get some more um, stories told, you know, in the the time that I've got. The the Arthurian stories, I mean, I've read, I'm sure we've all read quite a lot of them over the years. And uh, some of them try to eliminate the the more magical aspects, but you've kept them in. In fact, you've really made them pretty central. So why, why was that your take on it? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember. I just had this, I had this idea when I've, when I, you know, when you start writing something, you sometimes don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. 
I definitely don't know it's <laughs> going to go with King Arthur because I've only written three episodes and I've got a, I know vaguely what's happening in four and five, which is basically the first novel. But after that, I don't know. But I wrote a prologue about an evil sorceress sacrificing a child to wake up a dragon. I've since changed it. So it doesn't, that isn't the one. And now she doesn't kill the child. The child has another arc. I did wonder about that. Every time I was reading that little bit, I was thinking, he's not killing the baby. He's not killing the baby. <laughs> well, I, I I thought it was really powerful and really horrible and just really shocking and horror, you know, horrorful. And so I wrote it first and I thought that's great. And I, and the dragon then wakes up and I thought, okay, so now what's what happens and why is she why is the soothsayer, the um, the woman who, you know, it's and a, a woman killing someone else's baby also seemed powerful. Yeah. But in the end, I decided not to do that because it was too awful. <laughs> but I, but I, that's that's where it started. And I thought, okay, now, so, um, so what's the dragon doing, and what's going to happen, and why did she, why did she want to wake up the dragon, you know, and and so that, that everything sort of span out from there. But I also realised that actually King Arthur is a little bit too close to Bernard Cornwall's version, and also my own kind of historical fiction ones, which have a hero and a landscape and he raises armies and he's fighting and it's against impossible odds. And, mm. you know, and I thought it would be quite nice for a change to, to have some supernatural elements. And also because you've already got Merlin in there yeah. and Nimue, Nimue um, who is actually the soothsayer, it seemed like these two could be opposed to each other as they are in the Arthurian legends. And therefore the woman who wakes the dragon is Nimue and Merlin is opposing her and they're fighting this, supernatural battle a, a sort of uh, a meta battle above the stuff that's going on in the ordinary push of spearmen and 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 arthur arthur fighting on cavalry and, and him doing his stuff down there so it seemed quite interesting to have a um a supernatural battle going on above but also contingent with the the sort of um secular battle the prosaic land-based battle of of you know yeah. arthur you know shield walls and cavalry charges and all that kind of stuff yeah so can you tell us a little about your version of Arthur, the man rather than the legend? Uh, yes, I think I kind of wanted him to be, I mean, he's a young man, he's brave, obviously, but he's also got this idea of compromise. I know compromise is not a very sexy thing, <laughs> but I, it's actually, I think, key to practically everything yeah. in, in life, you know, particularly in politics, in diplomacy, in um, ruling, you know, any entity. Uh, in families and everything. And so he, I, I kind of think of him as a compromiser when everybody else is being extreme and, and saying, no, 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 we've got to kill them or we've got to destroy them or whatever. I think his central thing is that he's actually, you know, you've got to be strong and you've got to be firm, but actually coming to an accommodation and compromising and basically forming unity out of chaos. That's what he's trying to do, that, that he's grown up in a world of chaos where every kingdom is fighting against another kingdom. All the British kingdoms, you've got Reged and Dumnonia and Kerno and, and um, Gwent and all these little petty kingdoms endlessly fighting each other. And they're fighting each other at the same time as an enemy is coming in from the east, the Saxons and the Jutes and the Angles. And because they're so divided, they don't notice these people coming in and it's actually their downfall. So Arthur is struggling to unify um, the British kingdoms and get them to stand together to resist the invader. 
Now, we know historically, even though this isn't historical fiction, they didn't win. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We know what happened. <laughs> and this is a fantasy novel, so I mean, I could make them win, but I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. And the idea is that basically he's he's trying to create, he's trying to make England. He's a bit like King Alfred later on. He's trying to unite people against an invader. It's very influenced by that, actually. Mm. And even that is a false narrative because... The real enemy is not the is not the Saxons and it's not the invaders and it's not the warring tribes of Britain. It's actually the dragon. Mm. So, so back to back to your previous question, what what is the, what's the point of the dragon? Why are you including a dragon in all this? The dragon is basically the devil and is the epitome of evil. He's called Kithral, which is Welsh for devil. Mm. So basically, I, I, it, my pronunciation of the Welsh is going to be dreadful because I don't speak Welsh and I've got all this stuff from Wikipedia <laughs> you know, but, um, or in the internet. But basically the idea is that this this is a non-human sentient entity that's that has a completely different agenda to mankind mm -hmm. and uh, in fact sees mankind very much as we might look upon cattle or sheep or pigs to be preyed upon and herded and farmed and eaten yeah, i read the eaten bit <laughs> yes yes read that bit yeah yes have you got to that you've read that bit yes yeah, bit disgusting isn't it <laughs> there's this poor girl who gets eaten yeah by the dragon. I mean, but no but the dragon's like just eats a lot you know and he's not the only dragon there's there's lots of them the idea is that they are this race of they're kind of aliens actually because they come from there's a meteor that I mean this is, we, we, this is all backstory, but there's a meteor that comes down, and um, when the when the world was very young and fertile, was so fertile, it managed to turn this meteor into a dragon, or perhaps the dragon was buried in the meteor. I'm not, it's not clear, but dragon comes from elsewhere, but it but it manages through magic to breed with human beings, and create a race called Wormkind. Because the, the 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 series title is Wormkind Chronicles, and Wormkind, which took me ages to get to, because all the other ones, Dragonkind, um, you know, all the others have been taken and used. <laughs> yeah. Nobody had Wormkind, so I've like, latched onto that one. And the idea is that there's this like race of of dragonish type people with a with a uh, a father of dragons who's the who's the great. Kithral, the embodiment of evil, who basically want to colonise the whole of the earth and farm the people, and that's what Merlin is fighting against, and Arthur eventually will fight against them too. So that's basically where we're going with that one. I was interested to see you've you've got quite a few names in there from, if you like, the Arthurian sort of fifteenth century Arthurian stories, Gawain, Galahad, and so on. Are we going? Are you going to keep running through those? You're going to have a Lancelot and a Guinevere, or or do you? Judging from what you said earlier, you may not know that yet. Um, yeah, I want to have Lancelot. It's, I want to have Lancelot and Guinevere because that's that's such a great yeah. love triangle. It's fantastic. I mean, and it's 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 part of the the whole Arthurian appeal. I mean, I think you can't really have mm. Arthur without Guinevere and Lancelot because it's a it's the classic love triangle of the aging king 
and the beautiful girl mm. and and the love affair that, that nobody can resist it and it destroys them all and i think that's rather elegant and beautiful yeah. and it's the reason why yeah. mort d'arthur and all of the, it's basically mm. the reason why arthurian legends exist because this is such a powerful trilogy yeah. it's the same story that you you see in um troy as well in, yeah. um it's menelaus and paris and um helen you know it's that same love triangle i wonder if that's where the arthurian people got it from it's this idea of the old king <laughs> and the young beautiful thing and she wants she goes off with a handsome bloke and it, it destroys the world it's it's like it's something he's, uh, there's another one as well which i've i can't bring to mind but there's another example of this mm -hmm. same trope happening again and again but it's a really interesting one and everybody can relate to it because if you're the old king you 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 want a beautiful woman but she doesn't want you and she's going off with a yeah. handsome guy and you know it's just like we can all relate to it <laughs> which makes it so powerful and so definitely yeah, yeah. That, but that's not going to happen until arthur's still a young man mm. in the first novel he's like 20 or something and he's basically forming his his close gang of round table they're not called knights they're warriors of the round table i think yeah i think that's probably what it was yeah because they didn't have knights in those days but they're basically knights of the round table and they're all going to have a little bit of story some of them less than others i mean there's i don't know what to do with caradoc for example i have no idea what but it's going to evolve i've got i've got a funny one i've got bagdamagus who's who's one of the arthurian people and he's going to be like the comedy element he's kind of fat yeah. and greedy and funny and irreverent and i've got agravain who's kind of like a lieutenant and uh, gawain galahad is is in there too galahad's kind of young and handsome and, and incredibly sort of honest and you know and they're all going to have their various trays and yeah yeah. And um, but I can't, I can't, I, I can't quite remember what Hyle's going to do, and um, I don't remember what um, Eric's <laughs> going to do. So I'll just sort of see how they go. Some of them are going to get killed as well. I mean, I've got to have yeah. some fodder because <laughs> um, you know they can't all go through all the battles without getting killed. But I'm going to try and give them maximum emotional impact when they die it's it's the ones that um the ones books that get me are the ones where somebody comes in they introduce a character who's not in the original story especially with the king arthur legend and you're like yeah there's this character named ben or something and it's like oh you're so dead <laughs> well we all we all do that i think that we in our, in our books <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like the people who wear red uniforms in Star Trek, you know, they go on a mission, like, you know, they're gone, they're toast, you know. <laughs> no, I'm going to, I mean, I think by the, there's not going to be very many standing by the end of book three, I would think. You know, there's, a, there's around 12 of them now. I think there's 12. Yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't expect many of them to live all the way through till, book, till, mm. till the end of book three. They might all get killed in a massive conflagration. I've got five enemy knights as well, who are the bodyguards of, of the... Um, soothsayer or nimway and and they've all got like facial tattoos of various different animals so there's the leopard and the boar and the wolf fox and the snake i think i don't know quite what i'm going to do with them but i thought that'd be quite interesting <laughs> to have them with their own personality so i'm going to try and yeah. have them as as not just faceless henchmen but actual characters with arc story arcs and and things to do and one of them's going to be a coward and one of them's going to be kind of like particularly nasty and they all gonna uh, interact with i mean the thing is it might be more than three books that's the problem is i don't quite know it's also the beauty of this because yeah. i'm yeah. i've got you know you were saying when's the next one coming out and i'm I've just finished, I've just published uh, episode three and I've got to write something else. So the next one won't be for about six, seven weeks, mm. at least, maybe two months. 
and I and I don't know if I'm going to be able to wrap up the story because you don't get to co- go back and trim because you've published it. It's out there. So I can't go back and take out a few chapters and make it a more manageable size. I've got to just keep going forward. And the other thing I was thinking is I haven't really decided if I'm actually going to cut it up into novels. I might just keep on going like a Roman Fleuve, you know, the ones that just keep mm, on going. Yeah. Because there's no, I quite like the Broken Kingdom as a title and I don't want to have to think of another one. And also, is there is there a particular end point? I mean, I, I might have to chop them up and, and publish them as actual paper books because some people are complaining that they can't read them on paper. But I could do that sort of, I suppose I could do that before before finishing the whole thing. If I was going to go for, you know, if I was just, I mean, I figure 15 episodes will probably do it, but it could be 20. So we'll just have to see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the beauty of it is, because you're pu- publishing in episodes, if you suddenly find by halfway through episode four that five episodes isn't going to do it, you can always put a sixth one on the end and go surprise. Yeah, I can. Yeah, that that's that, that that's the nice it's a nice flexibility to be able to have. When I write a novel, normally there's a big battle at the end, and everybody gets killed, and the things are resolved, and you know the hero gets the girl or whatever, you know, and it's a it's a definite ending. But there isn't really any particular need to do that in this story. Yeah, because I'm the, the ending is comes when the dragon's defeated. And that's, you know, 15, 20 episodes away. So I could just keep on going. Though, you know, there is a clamour for people saying, well, I don't read e-books. And some guy said to me, I want you to do it in hardback and otherwise I won't ever read any of your books again. And I, I kind of had to restrain myself from being very rude. Yeah. Because it's like, I'm writing this story. If you yeah. don't read it, it's not going to break my heart, you know. <laughs> I lose a pound or something, you know. Mm. But we'll see how we go. I mean, you know... I, it would be probably sensible to put out a paperback version after five or six episodes and and yeah i guess if you come to a kind of kind of natural sort of a mini conclusion as mm. it were mm. and then you could at that point publish that yeah paperback yeah. but it, it does give you a lot of freedom i i can see that there's there's pluses and minuses aren't there i mean you you as you say you can't go back and change something but you have got the freedom to to work around things as you go yeah um, I guess as long as you don't paint yourself into a corner. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it is fantasy, so I could probably do something, you know. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, I am. I mean, I kind of roughly know. I know that the first bit is about dif- is about uniting Britain, and the second bit is about driving off the Saxon, and the third bit's about uniting the Britons and the Saxons to fight the dragon. So I kind of know, you know, there's a sort of there's a sort of overarching structure. Yeah. But I've, I've got to get in Guinevere and Lancelot at some point, and I don't know how I'm going to do that. Probably in, in you know, in, in about three or four episodes' time. Um, and I've got Tristan and Isolde, which I want to get in. I've, I've. It, it... Yes, I noticed that. I noticed them them popping up. Yeah, I'm going to have to do something with them, but I haven't. I, I can't quite work out how that works. I think quite soon because Tristan's such a nice. Yeah, thing and results this sort of you know um, manic pixie dream girl kind of you know perfect woman but without much character <laughs> uh, and I've got to do something with her. I mean we've got plenty of women of strong character. I mean you've got Nimue who's you know evil and you've got Morgan who is in love with Arthur and there's you know there's some catastrophe <laughs> happening there. Yes, and has some some very um, lethal gastric reflux. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but it seems like a good weapon for her to have, you know, to be yeah. able to, you know, to just like spit at people and they dissolve. 
<laughs> but you've got Igraine. I don't know what to do with her. That's Arthur's mother, mm. who's quite a brave woman. Gets horribly mistreated all the time. I should probably just have some normal women, you know, who don't, <laughs> don't want monsters <laughs> and who aren't being mistreated all the time. It's quite difficult to... Well, it is. I mean, I had a lot of criticism in my Wars of the Roses stuff about, uh, you know, why, why are all the women basically getting attacked all the time? And, and, yeah. and, and you do, I think, have to pull back from that at times. Because if you're not careful, whilst you know that it happened, it, it didn't sort of happen probably every day. So yeah, you have to sort of leaven it a bit, I think. Yeah. But in fantasy, of course, you can do whatever you like. Yes, that's true. That's true. I, I keep forgetting it's fantasy because it's kind <laughs> of like, I don't know, it's, just, it's in this in-between zone. It's sort of historical fantasy, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Is that is that what it's called? I don't know what the label, the genre is. Historical fantasy? <laughs> I, don't yeah, no. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of was almost there with, with Robin Hood because there was the Holy Grail and it was kind of slightly magical and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and also Robin Hood didn't exist, so he's not historical and King Arthur. Oh, we're going to have an argument. <laughs> <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> and also you know with the um the farborn viking ones i mean he he when he's, he turns into a berserker he's kind of like superhumanly mm. strong yeah. which is also again like just verging on the fantasy actually i wrote the first farborn as a fantasy novel um where he was going to have proper supernatural skills and and my publisher said they didn't want a fantasy novel they just wanted historical fiction so i just went and cut out some of the more <laughs> extreme bits and gave it back to them but you know so I've, I've kind of i've been sort of hovering around the edges of fantasy for ages i wrote one fantasy novel called gates of stone mm. and um i enjoyed that but you've got to kind of keep it i, I don't like fantasy books where the magic is um unbounded mm. i think there have to be yeah. some kind of constraints and it, 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 i think it has to hurt the person who wields the magic or cost them something when they wield it otherwise it, it, it's like mm. a free it's like yeah. free power absolutely so this yeah. my um my soothsayer has to burn herself she puts her hand into the flames in order to get yeah the, the magical sight that she has and it's the pain and then she can see visions with the when she gets the pain of her burnt fingers um but i always think that you know magic should come at a price what I did quite like, as far as you've written, is it is a kind of in-between world, but this is a ridiculous thing to have, have struck me, but basically I was I was interested when you mentioned sheep in the field. And I thought, well, yes, because life goes on. You know, there may be battles here and there, but always life goes on because people have to eat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody has to be farming and so on. And there is no time when that's not happened. Mm. Otherwise, we'd all, we'd all have died centuries ago. Yes. So it's quite nice that you you put that in to kind of just a small point to acknowledge that there was a living world there in amongst the fantasy and the violence and so on. Yes. Well, I, I mean, you know, you, as you say, you know, if, if it wasn't there, I was trying to think about the economy in the books that I'm writing and how how people would have traded and how they would have fed themselves and equipped themselves and built their houses and where they, what they'd used to thatch the house. So if they've got barley thatch, they've got to have barley fields. That means they've got to have large areas set aside for the plough, you know, and if they're going to use, um, if they're going to make wooden timbers, they need, you know, they need forests and, you know, all that sort of stuff that, that you need as, as background. I, I kind of, mm. I, I obsess a little bit about that too much really. 
I don't know. I think, I mean, Sharon and I have talked about this with, with other people before about the, in the past, the close connection between the environment and and people's survival. Yeah. You know, and it's part of that, isn't it, really? I also try and balance everybody's meals so that they so that it's a mixture. <laughs> so that they are eating some green vegetables and some fruits <laughs> and not just meat all the time. That's the bothering you, Angus. Though I in the Mongol thing, I've realized that you can actually live on just meat and milk because the Mongols did. Uh, and a very yeah. tiny amount of mm. rice or, or 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 millet, but I, I kind of think quite a lot about what people are going to be eating and <laughs> what, how the, you know where do they get the apples? Where there must be orchards? Where are they going to get the honey to make the mead? Well, they must have skeps, mm. you know, which they're which they're using to, you know, farm bees. Unless it's wild bees, in which case, how on earth do they? They've got you know, the, I've got a guy called the Honey Man who, in one of my books who yeah. goes out and gets wild honey, and that's his job. But I do think about the economy and the way that it all fits together quite a lot. Though, though perhaps I should do more of that. I mean, well, it's part of the world building, really, isn't it? The, yeah, the yeah. Creation of the world you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, if they didn't have an economy, then nobody yeah. could fight because nobody's got any money to buy the swords, the shield. The, you know. Yeah. Oh, one of the things I think is quite interesting about Merlin in my King Arthur is that he's very rich. <laughs> And I think I think that came from a comment from um, one of the Marvel movies that my son, who's eleven, watches all the time. There was a whole bunch of like superheroes getting together, and you know, one's got this power he can fly, the other guy can go invisible or whatever. And someone says to Batman, "So what's your superpower?" And and Batman says, uh, "Superpower? I, uh, I'm rich. I guess that's a kind of superpower." <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> so I thought it'd be quite fun to have Merlin being really rich which means that he has power above and beyond whatever magical power he possesses. Mm. It also makes him independent, doesn't it? Because yeah. if he's independently wealthy, he doesn't yeah. need... To join any particular ...support faction. or protection of any mm. one king. Yeah. He can pick and choose who he supports. Well, he's also not really concerned about people who... I mean, on the, on the sort of ordinary prosaic level he doesn't really care who gets murdered <laughs> and who's high king what goes on he likes arthur but he's not you know it's like he he, he just wants to destroy the dragon so that's it mm. yes i quite like the, the i think there's a bit where morgan says to him that arthur's in danger and he sort of says, yeah okay fair enough sort of yeah. never mind <laughs> move on yeah. yeah well i mean you know what, what are you going to do about it he's like yeah, away. Quite... <laughs> <laughs> it was probably in the past, so it's resolved now. Either way. He's quite a callous guy. Mm. But the other thing about his magical powers, it's largely based on technology as well. He's very much Batman, actually. Uh, he's, he's, he makes high quality steel. He's got he's got lots of forges based in the Forest of Dean, which was a big ironworking site mm. in the fifth century and perhaps later as well, because they had forests and iron ore deposits. And so they would make a lot of iron there. And I thought if if that's where Mer Siluria, where Merlin lives, it would make sense to have him making iron. And what if he made really excellent steel that was stronger than everybody else's iron? So the, all the other warriors tend to use iron and he's using high quality steel, which has got carbon in it, mm. probably from blood or from, from charcoal. So that, that there's a kind of like slightly kind of techie element of him producing the best steel and, and Arthur's got this steel coat which I don't know if you've read the last one but yeah. he wears this shiny yeah. steel coat made of little overlapping scales so that means it's very difficult to kill him 
which also enhances his power. And he's got Excalibur, which is also another very lovely bit of steel. So it's kind of kind of there's elements of industrial revolution in there <laughs> <laughs> into the mix. But what I liked about that was that Merlin says to him, yes, but you've got to clean it with this every day. <laughs> so yes. here you are, you've got this wonderful thing. And in order to keep it wonderful, you're going to have to do some work. Yes, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Not very magical. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. Speaking of Excalibur, the story is your own. How do you decide which parts of the legend to incorporate and which to leave out? Oh, you make it sound as if I've got this all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> And I very much haven't. I mean, I just pick the bits I like. I like, you know, I like Tristan and Isolde. That's a nice tragic story. I like um, Lancelot and Guinevere. Excalibur, the sword is very iconic and powerful. Mm. And I thought he's got to have Excalibur and it's got to be important. So Excalibur is um, is made from a meteor uh, of the same thing that the dragon is made from. So you can probably guess where that's going. You know. <laughs> so I wanted that. I liked. I wanted Arthur to be a reasonable man, but he's also got a very bad temper. So he's kind of, he can have fits of absolutely appalling temper. We haven't really had that yet, but he's... Now, we've seen reference. He's mentioned mm -hmm. his temper and his mum mentions yeah. his temper, but we haven't actually seen it yet. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he's going to lose. He's going to go a little bit berserk. And then he's going to feel really bad. He's going to fuck things up as well because of his temper. So there's there's a flaw in there as well. But most of the time, he's a kind of reasonable compromise, quite clever, quite cunning, organiser, uh, manager, basically, mm. sort of person, but with a terrible temper. Um, yeah. So which bit do I include? I, I, I think the bits... I think the bits that stick in your memory... Uh, a friend of mine, when I was, a, I was a journalist for a long time, and a friend of mine used to say, you know... When you're when you're applying through your notes of an interview, she she said to me, "Look, don't do that. Memory is the best editor." I don't know if you've heard that expression. The things that you remember of that interview of the person that you were interviewing, those are the ones that are important and will resonate with the reader. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with the Arthurian legends. The bits that I remember that would have stuck that have stuck in my memory are the ones I'm going to use, rather than plowing through them all again i mean i have I, i've read mort dartham i've read bernard cornwall and several other little arthurian things and uh, giles christianson a very good one as well mm. Um, mm. but the bits that you remember you're going to use because your memory is sieving out the ones that that that, that are important to retain um, so that's pretty much how I decide by the bits that I remember. Yeah. Also expediency. You know, if I know that I need, you know, a big dramatic moment here, then I'll I'll pull something from, from the legends and use it. Mm -hmm. But the, there isn't really an overall plan. I, you know, I'm groping in the dark and just finding a couple of weeks to write another episode and then getting back to doing the other stuff. But you're enjoying it. Yes, I am actually, yeah, more than I thought. That's the other thing that's quite nice is it's a manageable... It's about five or six chapters, which is a manageable chunk of work. Mm. And you can write it quite fast and then go over it and make it better and then publish it and then it's gone. So it's kind of like, it's it's quite a sort of satisfying lump of work to deal with. Whereas when you've got a whole book, you, you sometimes kind of like mm. sigh when you open up. <laughs> when I'm writing my normal novels and they're like 100,000 words long or 350 pages or something, you mustn't open it at the top because if you then start reading, you'll never get down to the bit that you were working on yesterday because mm. you'll you'll be spotting all sorts of flaws and 
infelicities and spelling mistakes and things where oh, yeah. that's not very good you know and you'll start editing it you've got to jump straight to the bit but when you've mm. only dealing with five chapters or six chapters it's much easier just to kind of digest it you can sort of yeah. masticate it and, and swallow it and digest it much more easily than you can a whole novel mm -hmm. and, I, and i get what you're saying about when you when you're starting a novel you're sort of at the bottom of the cliff face and and it's all uphill it's all it's all hard work yeah whereas if you've got a shorter project in view then then you can think beyond it yeah as someone asked me the other day do you like writing do you enjoy writing and i and i had to pause for a little bit and then i realized that the truth is i like having written yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally understand that it's either finishing a project or just getting to the end of the day and going yeah. oh i've done 2500 words i could live with that <laughs> yes and yeah that's exactly that's exactly how i feel and you think yeah okay i've done something i've done something i've done a good thing or when you've got a little chunk and you've published it you think okay great that was a piece of work i've done it i've published it it's out there it's gone and I've, I've, you know, I like having written rather than the actual process where you're sitting there and thinking, God, this is terrible. How can I improve it? And then <laughs> doubting yourself and, and you know, going, oh God, I can't do this, and you know, all that stuff that, that I'm sure all writers feel, or perhaps it's just me. No, no, I don't think those doubts go away. Yeah, no, really, how many no books matter, you've written? No. So having written is great because you can go, you can hold something up and say, yeah, yeah I did this, you know, <laughs> yeah, and this one here, and this that story, and I created these people, and they had lives, and they mm. lived, and they died. You know, and that's nice. I must say, that's what keeps me going. The thought of the book, the number of times I've just thought, especially the one I'm writing at the minute, is just when I hold it in my hand, it will have yeah. been worth it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, or having a, a shelf full of them and going, oh, yes, you see, I see, yeah, see that one, that one, and that one. I remember yeah. that one. I've yeah. about that yeah. one. Or, it's, it's a nice, it's a very good feeling. I've certainly enjoyed reading. Reading. I'm, I'm very glad. Thank you. And to be honest, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Angus. I didn't know whether I would because because you know you come across so many things on King Arthur in various guises, and because I've written a series on post-Roman Britain about Ambrosius, who is the kind of one of the sort of guys who's supposed to be the Arthur, if you. Oh like. yes. Uh, because of all that, and I've done lots of sort of historical research as far as one can, I was I was a bit worried when I started reading it. But I have to say, I think you've done a fabulous job of incorporating what Britain might have been like with the sort of fantasy elements and the Arthurian legend, because you've kind of got three things in there. You've got the, the Arthurian legend, Britain in that period that you've chosen, yeah. and the, the, the fantasy. But it seems it works for me anyway. It works for me as well. <laughs> oh, that's thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. I just want to say on on this recording because there's quite a lot of complicated things. I just want to say that the series is called the Wormkind Chronicles. That is probably going to be three novels. But let's let's say it's going to be three novels. And the first novel is called The Broken Kingdom. And I've no idea what the next two are going to be called. And the first episode is called Arthur's Bane. And the second ep episode is Arthur's Escape. And the third one, Arthur's Revenge. And the fourth one, fourth episode, probably coming in March, will be, I think, called Arthur's Folly. But um, So you, you get the theme. It's Arthur's something. And I'll tell you what number it is. So the pe people are looking for it, you know, read them in order. 
probably best to start at one and they're, and they're only 99p and they're just as ebooks at the moment and they may very likely will be paperbacks later on this year in the probably in the sort of late summer um if, when i've finished writing and i do like the fact that not every episode ends on a total cliffhanger as well you know I, that's probably a mistake episode three we've got a good ending to episode three also you know it carries on yeah well i was i was originally i was talking to this woman who is works in television and she said no no you've got to have a cliffhanger at the end of every episode to make them buy the next one and i thought well do i i mean perhaps you be more sensible but it's also quite nice to finish an episode so finishing episode three where there's a resolution of sorts mm. i kind of knew that i was going to have to make make people wait for a month and a half for the next one so uh it seemed pretty fair to give them some sort of resolution and hopefully they'll pick <laughs> up again um pick up again next time around but of course you've got uh you've got several strands to the story yeah. anyway yeah. so yeah. whilst there might be a resolution for one character there isn't necessarily for another one so you've got certain things are still hanging even though you know one part is a, is partially resolved so i think that's good yeah we know arthur's arthur's on the up at the minute he's he's um comfortable and happy but Egraine in Kerr Camlan. We don't know what's happening in Kerr Camlan at the minute. So. No, I don't know what's happening either. <laughs> oh, just, just one thing, other thing to say. Uh, Kerr Camlan is um, South Cadbury. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if everyone yes. knew that, but it's, it's an incredible place. I went there a few years ago on the way to Cornwall, and I stopped there and had lunch and walked around the the castle. I think I stayed the night actually. Um, and it's it's a brilliant kind of lozenge shaped thing that sits on the plane. And and when you're there, you can see Glastonbury Tor mm. in the distance on a clear day, which is I suppose thirty miles away. And it's kind of on the main A3, it's just off the A three A three. So it's like mm. a really good central position for Camelot. So uh, that's why I picked it. But it's quite nice having been there. I can imagine, yeah. you know, where things are going to be happening. Mm. Which reminds me, where Kithrall is? Is he in Edinburgh? Uh, yes. Mm. I thought so, and I was reading it. I'm there thinking, is he? Is he on Arthur's seat or Nimway? Thinking this is going to be confusing if he sat on Arthur's seat. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because Arthur's seat was originally called Archer's seat. Yes. And um, and I was looking at Arthur's seat. I was wondering if I could. I was thinking Arthur. I was looking at all sorts of Arthurian things, and then I said. It's called Archer Seat, and it was then changed to Arthur yes. Seat, and it is an extinct volcano. And if you look at the the topography of Edinburgh, there's yeah. the bit where the castle is, then there's Arthur Seat, and in the valley below is where Edinburgh is, and then you've got the north, you've got the sea. So basically, it is Edinburgh, and and the Kithral is mm. sitting on um, on Arthur's Seat, which was uh, in this fantasy still mm. occasionally volcanic. And and uh, the soothsayers on Edinburgh Castle in that on that incredible rock uh, and down in the valley as well the horrible yeah. stuff goes on with the feeding of the dragons and poor folk of Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, I'm glad I worked that out. Yes. <laughs> so so Edinburgh really comes from from the phrase Eatonborough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very good. <laughs> the Eaton. Actually, I could, I might put that in. <laughs> oh, be good, yeah, be a good little joke. Well, thank you so much, Angus. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you and finding out the um, history behind the writing of the books. <laughs> I think 
It is a fabulous series. I can't believe I've got to wait until March for episode four. <laughs> Sorry, I've got. I've just got to. I've got to write another one in between now <laughs> and then. It's not that I'm not doing nothing. I've got to write a whole, practically a whole novel. I know you'll be forgiven. It's just it was. It is. It is one of those books that you know. There's so many books out there, and a lot of the time yeah. you just enjoy reading mm. a book. There's only a few at a time that you get to the point where you can't wait to read it. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you very yeah, much. Like, I want to go to bed so I can read half an hour of Angus Donald. <laughs> well, it, it'll it'll come very soon, I promise. And then and then the next one will be just a month after that because I've got Blood of the Bear is is the fifth Viking one, and that's I've got to deliver that by mid March. Then I'm going to write that one, say end of March, and then I'll have some edits on Blood of the Bear, and then I'm going to write another one and sort of April. And to be fair, I'm looking forward to the next episode of Bjarki as well in Fireborn series. I've been enjoying those. Okay, thanks very much for having me, and I'll hope to see you again soon. And uh, will you give me you give me a shout when this is coming out? And I can... Oh, yes, definitely, yeah. 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 Thank you very yeah. much, Angus. A pleasure as always. Yeah, great to talk to you. Okay, thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Derek. Bye-bye. See you yes. soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you very much to Angus. Do join us next time when we'll be talking to S.D. Sykes about her series of books on the Black Death. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we'll see you again soon. (laughs) 